empowered people make informed decisions that lead to living a life without regret. This is Sarah Kaki and Shauna Woods from Atlanta Divorce Law Group, and this is the Happily Ever After Divorce Podcast. Welcome to the Happily Ever After Divorce Podcast. I am Sarah Kaki with Atlanta Divorce Law Group, and I'm joined by our very own managing partner, Shauna Woods. Shauna, let's today talk about what we tell our clients, how their assets are going to be divided, what our clients expect, and then what really the standard is in Georgia. As both you and I know, the standard in Georgia is equitable division. However, that is not so clear to a lot of people because the word equity gets confused with the word fair. And then what does equitable mean? So a lot of legal language in there. But then with this legal language is also a mixture of emotional feelings about fair, equitable, equity. So let's just bring it all to the table and kind of explain the law, but then also explain how the law is experienced, not just from a division of assets perspective, but also emotionally. Absolutely. So a lot of times when I'm talking with a client, I'll start out and say, when you're talking about a divorce case here in the state of Georgia, you have five major issues and you can have a lot of sub issues, but you got five major issues. And the ones that we're going to be talking about today on the podcast, how are we separating our assets and how are we separating our debts? And once we've decided what all those assets and debts are, Georgia is an equitable division state, not necessarily an equal division state. Equitable actually does mean what's fair. And equal, of course, means 50 50. Mm-hmm. So, so let's, let's stop let's right get there. In there. Okay. Because this is right <laughs> where things get confusing for some people. Some people think that equitable division immediately means 50 50. And because the assumption is fair is 50 50. So can you dive into that? Absolutely. And I want to say a lot of cases for the vast majority of time, 50-50 is what's fair. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it's how do we define the 50 as a whole other topic in podcasts. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes 50-50 is not fair. So when is it not fair for someone to share in all of the debt? Or when is it not fair for one to take 50% of the asset, right? And so those are the type of things. It's never a good argument to say, because I earned most of the assets, therefore I get them. That doesn't fly. That is not something that you want to take to court. Well, here's one that I always hear is I contributed more. Right. So I should get more of the assets. So when you think about it, though, when in how I explain to the clients, in the marriage, your work is marital. When you go out and you earn an income, Your work, the blood, sweat that you're putting into it is not individual in the eyes of the state of Georgia. It is marital. Therefore, when you're putting your work in, 50% of that income coming back, the court's looking at it, that that is shared. The two of you own that together, Mm -hmm. not one individual. So it doesn't matter if it's in your name or your spouse's name. It is a shared marital asset. Because just because you contributed more financially, does it mean you necessarily contributed more to the family? So when we have a situation, because this comes up a lot, with, especially with the marital residence, correct? That's yeah. when this assumption of 50-50, what's fair, what's not fair, equitable division really pops its head. And we have one spouse that did not work. And then the other one did work and did pay the mortgage note every month 
as long as that property, that home is considered to be a marital asset, meaning it was gained during the time of marriage, what is fair may be 50-50, if even enough. if one party did not contribute to the mortgage note. Absolutely. So let's walk down that in a couple of different scenarios, because I do want to talk about what we think is maybe fair mm-hmm. versus what someone else thinks is fair. Absolutely. So we're looking at this as, okay, you have, I'm going to say a 20 year marriage. You have somebody who has stayed home, raised kids, maybe gone, you know, been the corporate spouse, right? And really supported their spouse. The other spouse has been the breadwinner. Looking at all their assets, probably fair to divide them 50-50. Then we go, or let's let's flip this. Let's say that you really didn't have somebody who was raising children. You had no children. They weren't really a spouse that needed to be corporate spouse or support you in any way. Mm-hmm. That they worked and that they spent their money freely on fun things, mm-hmm. right? So you put your money into the home, and they did fun things with a with the home. A lot of times, people look. That's not fair. It's not fair for me to have to give them, is is how people feel, give them half the equity in the house when they did nothing to contribute to it, nor did they do anything to contribute to the family or the growing of the marriage or the marriage. Those are very delicate. Those are hard things to prove because at what point in time did you have that agreement of who's paying what? So differently, when people come in and say, I think this is what's fair, it's generally what's fair to them. And they have to back out and think the way the court is looking at it is a lot more general and what's fair to most people. Right. So when we think about dividing things other than equally on a 50-50 basis, the swings are not as much as most people want them to be. We're seeing swings maybe of a 55, sometimes a 60% to one person if there's been really egregious behavior. Right. But you're not seeing these 70, 80% of these assets that some people will feel is fair for them to receive. And I think this is the part where your emotional tie to what's fair really shows up in people. We talked about it before where, you know, what you went through in your childhood, what your family narrative was, what your family dynamic was, what are your early belief systems develop? They really do show up when you're in this fight or flight, right? And divorce can at times, especially when you think that your financial livelihood or your home or is being up at stake, you feel that fight or flight and then your core belief systems really show up. And what is fair a lot of times comes from what were we taught as a child is fair, right? What was it, the parental dynamics of how the dinner table food was spread out? What were, what were you being taught at school, right? What did you have to share with your siblings? To me, what growing up is very simple. If the teacher had, you know, a pizza and he was had eight slices of pizza and there were eight children in that classroom, he was going to give each child a slice, irregardless of who's hungry who's not hungry, who's already had lunch, who had pizza yesterday, who's going to have pizza for dinner that night, right? Right. When you look at that, I think that is a really interesting way to look at society as a whole as well, because we should be equitable in our society. And we strive to be, I really do think we are. Our needs are so unique, right? You're right. Bobby and Susie are at school today. Bobby had a really big breakfast and he doesn't really like pizza, right? So it may not be 
equitable right. for Bobby to have a whole slice of pizza when Susie didn't eat breakfast and probably may not have dinner. So there's differences when we're looking at how we relate that back to our clients is think about this in in a lot of times if you have somebody who has stayed home, they're looking for probably more cash initially because they don't have an outlay to buy a new home. They may not have had the work history to support a mortgage at the time. So there's going to be an establishment of some spousal support, perhaps. And perhaps the other one is a little bit older and wants to save more on the retirement. So even if we're looking at the assets as a whole, Mm -hmm. what's equitable within the assets may still work out to be 50-50, but it's not as if you're just reaching into every account and going, here's your 50. Right. 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 It's a puzzle piece. And another thing I like to tell people is it really does have to be slightly egregious, probably even more than slightly yes. egregious, really egregious. If you're going to take something to trial and say, I want more than 50%, you really have to justify this to a court who sees a lot of egregious things in their courtroom to say, why in your particular case, Sarah Kaki, do you think it's unfair to not have to take on that debt or to have to give away that asset? So Shauna, can you give some examples of egregious behavior that would make us say, you know what, 50-50 is not going to hit fairness here? Absolutely. There have been times if you have an addiction or an alcoholism issue, and I have seen situations where the person has spent twenty, thirty, forty, sixty thousand dollars going to rehab and still goes back out and uses and still goes back out and drinks, right? Is it fair for the other person to have to share and burden that debt when it was the original mm-hmm. person who who in, you know incurred that? Adultery. Not just because they had adultery. And I want to make that very clear. I was sitting in mediation with a judge who's a former judge, the Superior Court of Fulton County, who looked at the clients that I just want you to know in the greater Atlanta area, most judges aren't going to care much about adultery. Yeah. They're not going to reward you for being the faithful one and they're not going to punish the other person for being the the worst process to get redemption from it's not where you're supposed to get the redemption but if you have an adulterous situation in which that person took money took marital assets and i do have a couple of these cases and spent it on the affair i've had people buy engagement rings while they were still married I've had people spend, you know, 10,000, 20,000 on vacations with their paramour. That kind of stuff, we may be able to claw back because that's unfair. If you are dissipating a marital asset with a, a paramour, we should be able to get some of that back. The court doesn't always reward that, but I do think those are a lot of times in our, in, in settlements, we really do are able to get those monies back. I'm going to give you two more scenarios to flesh this out further. Okay. And these are common scenarios that we've both have dealt with. One is a financial abuse, uh-huh. right? So, and financial abuse comes in many forms, but the specific one I'm thinking about is when you're leaving the other person in the dark of the financials and you just do not give them access to what's going on. You're keeping them in the dark and they have no idea. And by the time they come to get divorced, they realize that, whoa, there's a tax liability that I didn't know. <laughs> and we filed jointly. Well, look at these credit card bills and so forth and so on. How does fair 
equitable 50-50 splitting of the debts work out here? And one of the things I will say is everything is very fact specific. So we're being general here and each case can be different depending on what did they do with that credit card debt. So I'm walking through two different scenarios that I'm having in my head just based on what you said and how I think we would treat them. Mm-hmm. So we say you have someone who has been quote unquote kept in the dark, but they wanted to be kept in the dark. They didn't want to have to deal with any of the finances. And so they turned it over to the other person and said, you take care of it. And they've said, and I don't want to be put on a budget, right? I want to be able to spend what I want to spend. And the other person being a breadwinner and a caretaker, well, they would feel probably emasculated and they weren't able to give their spouse everything they wanted. So they might run into a lot of credit card debt, or maybe there's not enough asset left. And that person's going, well, you made $250,000 every year for the last 10 years, where did that go? And they don't realize that money was spent on a lifestyle. In that case, is it fair? I think yes. Because if you're willfully ignorant of your finances, and I want to repeat that, willfully ignorant of your finances, and you allow somebody else to take care of them, then that is your responsibility if they mess it up. You know, the bankruptcy court has the same... (laughs) The same puts the same responsibility on willful blindfulness or willfully being ignorant to what's going on on the other side. Yeah. Okay. Flip it. Flip it. So let's talk about the cases in which you're not willfully ignorant, but they have suddenly, maybe a couple of years ago, maybe five, shut you out of the account. Right. They are now doing things you're not sure where they are or what they're doing, and you've never seen these credit card statements, and all of a sudden we're in the middle of a divorce and you're holy crap, there's a $50,000 credit card debt out here. We have to really break that down. Is that fair? Because they intentionally kept you separate. Financial abuse, though, I think this may be where you're going at all, can also be hiding of the asset. Right. And in those cases, you have to kind of do a tracing one or the other Right. Either you were willfully ignorant and you participated in this lifestyle. We can trace it back and say, yeah, you bought the expensive house. You went to the expensive dinners. You had the expensive vacations. There's no more. Or you're looking at and go, my house isn't that expensive. We didn't do the dinners. I'm not buying fancy jewelry. Where did this money go? Then we really start to dig in a little further. And if we can see that we can't find where the money went, that's when we can go, you know what? We believe it should have been a lot more. Therefore, we're asking for a lot more of this percentage. All right. And this is the other scenario. There's times when I, you know, we talk to a client who has been the care financial caretaker of the home and have taken all the financial responsibilities. They're aware of all the credit cards. They've given their spouse a credit card that they see the statements from and their spouse does not fully know what's coming in and what's going out. And it's sort of a bit of that willful ignorance that you're discussing. And they keep overspending. They keep overspending. And, you know, the spouse that's, you know, working and making the income keeps telling them, hey, you can't purchase designer bags like this. You can't shop like this. We can't go on this trip. You can't, but the other spouse keeps doing it. And now when they come to us, there is credit card statements that, you know, the client we're representing who has been working and has been making money and has been screaming bloody murder over the budget saying, am I really going to have to split this 50-50? 
And unfortunately, I think in that scenario, yes, it is a very hard pill to swallow. That being said, how long were you yelling about these credit cards? How long, and I don't mean yelling, literally, obviously, how long were you bringing this up? How long has this been an issue in your marriage? How long have you been saying, we cannot spend this way? The longer you let this go on, the more the court's going to say, yeah, that might have been your argument, but this is yours. You guys are both in this. So, you know, we talk about egregious behavior, making how that could get in the way of 50-50 being fair. Let's talk about some ways that people can mitigate, okay, what to say that they can get closer to that fairness factor. One of the things that we hear a lot of people say is, could I, could I cut off these credit cards? Could I cut off these uh, access to this money so that they don't run off with it? And so let's talk about how you can mitigate from being left with crazy amount of debt, money being moved over without being held for egregious financial abuse and behavior or freezing out your spouse from the accounts. Where's that fine line? Well, first of all, I'm going to say post-nuptial agreement. Oh, yes. I, that's my favorite. Say it again. Post-nuptial agreement. If you didn't get a prenup. If you did not get a prenup. Well, perhaps even if you need to change your prenup. Right. Right. A lot of times people will come to us and say, I want to work on the marriage, but I am scared what's going to happen if we go through a divorce because of the financial things that are going on. We can put together a post-nuptial agreement that spells out what a divorce, what the assets and debt division are going to be in a divorce situation. It does force the parties into that financial conversation. And quite frankly, if you're having these conversations, if you're having these arguments, I strongly urge you to go see a therapist and talk about your finances with them. Talk about this is how I view finances. This is, I, you know, maybe I'm a saver and the other person's a spender, but talk about it with each other. Your finances are a key part of your marriage. Mm -hmm. I know all of us were Bon Jovi back in the 80s, you know, <laughs> living on a prayer, but that's not reality. Where you want to go in life is very dependent about who you choose to go with. And if the two of you can't get each other's same page on finances, then you probably need to separate the finances at least. So post-nuptial agreement actually can save your marriage if you're not able to reach consensus on finances. And I love post-nuptial agreements for the exactly everything we're talking about, because if two people have different ideas of what is fair, and ultimately that is what's going to determine the division of assets... Instead of fighting it out in the courts of, I believe this is fair, you believe this is fair, you can settle that out while you're in partnership and marriage together. And in a marriage, not just over finances, but all parts of marriage, you're going to have the constant conversation of what is fair, right? And as much as adults, we try to outgrow that concept of, well, you know, only children expect <laughs> what is fair? That's a childish thing to say. Don't we tell that our, to our kids all the time? Well, you know what? In the real world, you know, not, you don't always get fair, but guess what? The legal world, the legal realm here is actually looking for fairness. So we, but we have different definitions of it. That's, that's the key is not necessarily what you think is fair. What we call in the law, the reasonable man right. thinks is fair. And the fact finder, is the one who gets to determine what is fair. Your fact finder most of the time is a judge. 
So one of the most important questions I ask any client coming in the door, what county do you live in? And after we file for the divorce, which judge do we have? And it's not because you know, we're trying to manipulate the situation. Just after 20 something years of practicing with all these counties and the judges and, the, and all of the people involved, you kind of know after a while what they believe is fair. You know, what, what they think is going to happen in, in a particular situation. But I do want to kind of circle back to one of the things that you said in regard to what can we do? And I said post nuptial. Right. There's a couple other things. Mitigating. Mitigating circumstances. I do think that if you have a credit card with joint names on it, that lowering a credit limit is perfectly acceptable. One, we are talking about what happens in a divorce situation. The credit card company doesn't really care about your divorce. The credit card company cares what name is on that credit card. So even if the other person is ordered to pay it, American Express will say, that's nice, Sarah. Now I need my money. Right. <laughs> so you have to be aware of where your name is on certain things. We will separate them out in the divorce, but going through it, that company is still going to be looking directly at you. Another thing I would say is, yes, if you have somebody who is a spender, who you know maybe spends emotionally, mm-hmm. And you have $100,000 sitting in your savings account and you're starting to talk about a divorce process. Yes, I would talk to a divorce attorney about how much of that I need to move into an account in my sole name. Right. I had one case in which the husband told the wife he wanted a divorce and she went out, emptied out their savings and bought an RV and took off. And we had a heck of a time finding her across the United States. It happens. Well, Shauna, thank you so much. And I think that this conversation could go on forever because there's such a philosophical underlying tone of what is fair. But, you know, I think that the courts, for the most part, they do everything they can to get it right. And I think it'd be nice for people to become informed consumers of these legal services because you should not just go in anywhere that promises you 50-50 because that actually is not the Georgia standard. It's equitable division. Thank you, Shauna. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Happily Ever After Divorce Podcast. If you'd like to learn more, go to atlantadivorcelawgroup.com forward slash resources. 